Last week we read Genesis 33 and the first 17 verses of Genesis 33. You can be opening your Bible there. We won't read that passage again, but I wanted to continue to make some observations and to see if there's some more lessons that we could learn from this passage. Genesis chapter 33, and in those first 17 verses, actually we have a good illustration of our Sunday morning lessons uh, on sanctification that I began last Sunday and will continue uh, this Sunday, Lord willing. Last Sunday we had the unconditional provision of sanctification that is something that takes place, a work that takes place when you accept Jesus as your Savior. You're immediately separated from the rest of humanity and you belong to God for eternity. And this this coming Sunday, Lord willing, we'll consider the practical aspect of sanctification and how that we are daily to be set further and further apart from the world and from the, the lust of the flesh and to be drawn closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a daily basis, and it has to do with our daily choices. Jacob is a good example of, of both aspects of that sanctification. He was made new. He was given a new name. He was made a prince of God. And that was a change from his name of Jacob, which was a supplanter. And he often supplanted by deceit and by using the, the tricks of the flesh to get what he wanted. Now, fortunately, Jacob wanted that which was truly good and eternal. He wanted those blessings that come from the promises that were given to Abraham. Uh, but he used carnal means to obtain them when he didn't need to. And he used carnal means to protect himself on his way back to the land of Canaan. And we see in, in the passage that we read last week in Genesis 33 that he lies again to his, his brother Esau. He butters him up first, and then he lies to him. And so we see that Jacob who is now Israel, he's given a new standing, but he continues to use at times those old methods of Jacob. And so this is a good illustration of, of how that the Christian, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are made new instantly. We are something that we weren't before. We are different from the rest of the world. We are set apart from those that are lost in sin. And we're given that new nature. That's instantaneous. But it is a process for us to learn how to yield to that new nature and to tap into all of those new ways that, that we have been given. God doesn't abandon Jacob when, he, when Jacob reverts back to his old ways. He doesn't abandon us either. I'm glad that God is patient with us. But that patience is not an excuse for us to continue in our carnality. And sadly, that's how a lot of God's people understand God's grace and God's long-suffering and patience with us is they believe that God just ignores when we revert back to our old ways, that he doesn't see our sin because we're saved by grace, because we are eternally his and eternally separated from the world and unto God that it really doesn't matter how we live. And, and that whole way of thinking is a trap of Satan. 
to keep God's people from two things, bringing the glory to God's grace that that he deserves, but it also keeps us from enjoying God's best beginning right now in this life, but in eternity as well. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2.19, where we see that God's grace is a two-sided coin. 2 Timothy 2.19, in this illustration that Paul gives, it's not a coin, two-sided coin, but a two-sided foundation. And this is how we should understand the grace of God in its fullness, not just look at and be thankful for the provided aspects, that unconditional aspect of his grace, but to also embrace and understand and yield to the work of grace that will change us and cause us to think differently and therefore to act differently. Jacob is learning that in our next section that we get to. We'll see that Jacob begins to make choices that are in accordance with who he is now, with who his, the two words that, that, uh, we often hear, and they are biblical words, so we won't shy away from them, but that unconditional side of our salvation is called our standing. We stand in grace, in the favor of God. We'll never know his condemnation once you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, based on the merit of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, not on what you have done or will do, but what Jesus did for you. That is your standing in grace, you're standing before God. But then Paul also writes about our state. He wrote uh, uh, to the saints to, to inquire about their state, their condition, their practical living day to day. And sadly, especially with the Corinthians, but also with other, other saints, their state did not reflect their standing. They were saints, but they weren't living holy lives. They were made holy, but they weren't living holy lives. And so our state should reflect our standing before God. And that's what we're going to see in 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his from past eternity. That's the security of the believer. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he knows who you are. He sees you in Christ. And how should that truth impact our day-to-day living? Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's the two-sided foundation, the two-sided coin of the grace of God. We are eternally his. He knows who we are. He'll never forget us. He'll never abandon us. No matter how many times we fail him, he will never fail us. But that very revelation of his love and his grace should cause you to respond in love to him. Are you grateful for what he's done for you? Do you understand what Christ died to give you? And those Christians who continue to live in sin, to to live lives of carnality, it's an expression of ingratitude. for what Jesus did for them on the cross. To continue to live in carnality is to be blind to the destructiveness of sin. Sin has a season of pleasure. That's true. The Bible tells us that. There is a season, but that season is short, and it ends in loss. It ends in death of some kind. 
And so if you really have a revelation of what God saved you from, why would you want to go back to it? Why would you want to continue to have those old habits of lying and deceit and immorality? Those things destroy lives, destroys our lives. But we're new. We've been given new tools. We have a new life. And we should learn to to yield to that. Thank God for his patience, his long-suffering. But may we use that truth to cause us to get back up when we fail, ask forgiveness, and then ask for strength. Let that grace teach you now how to walk in godliness. Let's go to Ephesians 1 and verses 3 to 6. Here we'll, we'll see that we'll never be rejected because of our carnality. We'll ne- never be rejected by God because we are accepted in the Beloved. But there's a difference between being accepted by God and being acceptable in his presence. There are a lot of Christians that are living a life that is unacceptable to their father. Now, they're accepted by him, but their behavior, their conduct is unacceptable. So in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice all of this is God's work, not yours. Just as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. All of that's God's work. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That is your standing when you accept Jesus Christ. That is your standing. And God knew what your choice would be from before the world began. That is your standing before God for eternity. Accepted. Now let's go to Romans 14 and verses 17 and 18. Here we see the believer's state, his practical daily condition, his spiritual condition. He has life, but what kind of condition is he in? Is he yielding to that life? Romans fourteen seventeen and 18 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, doing what's right on a daily basis, and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those virtues are the result of of the Holy Spirit working in your life, changing you, transforming you, revealing the will of the Father to you and giving you the ability to do the will of God, that produces peace and joy in your life. Sin and carnality produces confusion and loss, but doing the will of God by the power of the Holy Spirit brings peace and joy. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, men see that testimony when we live a life of godliness. But notice, he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God. Now, the implication is that those who don't serve Christ in those things are not acceptable. Their conduct is not acceptable. So we need to understand those two things. God wants our practical daily life, our state to reflect our eternal standing. He made me holy. He sanctified me. Now I need to daily 
yield to the working of the Holy Spirit that will continue to draw me closer to the Lord and further from the world and from the flesh. Ephesians 4.30. Those Christians that have this warped understanding of the grace message, of the grace of God, we're saved by grace eternally, so it doesn't matter how we live, God doesn't see our sin. They're not reading the same Bible that I'm reading. They're not reading the full revelation that was given to the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know you can make the, the triune God sad? Your Father sad? The Holy Spirit who's here to help you? Why would you want to grieve your helper? But when we ignore God's instruction in his word, when we live according to the flesh, when we revert to those old ways, we make the Holy Spirit sad. We make our Father sad. We make our Savior sad. When you have a real revelation of what Jesus did for you on the cross, that love will motivate you to do what's right in his sight. Not to please anybody else but him. The Apostle Paul says, the love of God constrains me. It puts chains around me. And that's not a pleasant thought for those of us that are, that are uh, so fond of liberty and freedom. But when you fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll keep you from things. Things that will harm you and others, but things that will also bring sadness to, to your Heavenly Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Love will cause you to be the kind of Christian that you should be. Rules and regulations don't do it. Having your pastor or your parents or whoever follow behind you and hit you on the knuckles every time you do something wrong, that, that's not going to change you. But when you fall in love with Jesus Christ, that love will check you. It'll cause you to stop and think about what you say and how it reflects on Jesus. It'll cause you to stop and think, how, how can I bring glory to God in this situation? And, and that's a, life is full of very real experiences, but the power of the gospel is just as real. It can cause you to be angry and sin not. It can cause you to love those who hate you. It, that, that power is real. We're new. That, we're new creatures. That's, that's, that's a real power within you. But you have to know it. You have to yield to it. And when you fall short of that, you have to recognize it. Take that to your loving, long-suffering Father. But then get up from there. 1 Corinthians 9. There's consequences for carnality and sin in this life. But there's also consequences in eternity, even for those that are eternally saved. And to me, the, the most tragic consequences of carnal living reverting back to the, those old ways of doing things and saying things and, and thinking. To me, the, the, the most tragic consequences are the eternal loss of position and reward in eternity because this life is so short. It's, it's going to be over sooner than you think. And you younger ones, I know that sounds like an old man talking, and it is, but one day you wake up and you turn around and you say, where did life go? It's just a vapor for a little bit and then it's gone. This is why we are exhorted in the Old Testament, young people, from your youth, serve the Lord. Begin right now. You don't have to wait till you're old. Begin 
to desire to be pleasing to him today in every area of your life. And that starts with obey your parents. That's pretty much uh, the basic rule for, for children until you get to a place when that transition takes place. And then, and then little by little, all those things that you used to gripe and complain about your parents being so domineering and bossy and all of that, then all of a sudden, all those responsibilities now become yours. And you kind of wish maybe someone else would bear it. But no, it's your turn. The Lord will be faithful to you to give you the wisdom to make the choices that you need to make, some very important decisions, but also in every relationship. God can change you. We all know our basic personalities and the things that are just come natural to us. But for the child of God, we are to be a people of principle and purpose. And those principles and purpose are found only in the instructions of the Word of God in the Bible for every relationship, your marriage, your, your parents, your, your friends. Yield to those new ways. Don't return to the old ways. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, we see there are consequences when the Christian chooses carnality, disobedience to the will of God. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. He's talking to Christians. Live your life in such a way that you may obtain whatever this prize is that's being referred to. Eternal life is not a prize. It's a gift. All right, so something else is being talked about here. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. If you want to win, there are some things that you avoid, and there are things you dedicate yourself to. It's just natural in sports. It's the same in your spiritual walk. There are things you need to avoid, and there are things you need to dedicate if you're going to be successful in this race. Now, they do it, natural athletes. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Make your life count. Make your words count. Make your thoughts and actions count. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, Paul, who was given this glorious message of grace, he says, after I've preached to others, if I live a life of carnality, I myself should be disqualified. And the thought there in the Greek is rejected for the prize. Not rejected by God, but rejected from obtaining this prize. As we continue to study Paul's revelation, we understand that the prize for the Christian is a position closest to Jesus Christ in eternity. The Bible tells us that Jesus will have a bride. Now that that thought has to do with a closeness. That's in, in our natural relationship, that's the closest relationship that two individuals can have. And this is why it's used as an illustration. The closest place to Christ in eternity, his eternal partner to rule and reign with him. That's the prize that's set before the believer. And those who choose to live a life of carnality, and again, understand what that means. We use the term carnality. To ignore God's instruction for your life. All the instructions we have in the word of God for our life as Christians, as God's people. If you ignore them or rebel against them, that's that's carnality. It's 
according to your flesh, your old sinful nature that you were born with. To do that will lead to disqualification, not for eternal life, but for the closest place to Jesus Christ in eternity. And so do you see how falling in love with Jesus is the answer to everything? If you fall in love with Jesus, you will want to be close to him in eternity. Not so you can boast about it. Not so you can wear a crown and point to it and tell everybody what what a wonderful Christian you are. But because you love Jesus. That's what's going to motivate you to do what's right. And so ask the Holy Spirit for that personal revelation of who Jesus is. What he did for you on the cross that he daily intercedes for you, that he is your good shepherd that daily leads you and feeds you and protects you. Fall in love with him. Let him change your life. This is why I've always been dumbfounded about there are those who preach the grace message, once saved, always saved, who love the bridal message. They talk about the bride all day long. I'm going to win Christ. Christ is my bridegroom. And yet they also teach, present grace as lasciviousness, a license to sin, a tolerance of sin. And I've never comprehend, do they think just knowing about the bridal message is what's required to, if you you love the grace message enough, that's all that counts to, to be the bride of Christ? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's the righteous acts of the saints that make up that wedding dress. It's running well, living a life that honors the Lord. That's the qualification for winning Christ. And because I love him, because I understand what he's done for me, I don't want to make him sad. I don't want to bring him reproach. I want others to see the reality of faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just another religion. It's a power that will change your life. It will give you strength and comfort and joy and peace when everything else in your life is upside down. But there is a a peace and a joy that comes from knowing you're walking in the will of God, that he will show himself faithful. Titus 2, 11 to 15. We'll close with this this evening. We'll, Lord willing, in our next lesson, we'll see that Jacob begins to make the right choices after this. So he, he's learning. And God was patient with him, just as he's with patient with us. But we do have to begin to grow if we want to enjoy all that he intends for us to enjoy. Here's this other side of grace. Our standing is eternal. We stand in grace, favor, not condemnation, favor. But that same grace that gives us that standing will also transform our state, our condition. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What does that grace of God that saves you do? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It couldn't be any more clear than that, could it? How we, what, what's going to motivate us to live that kind of life, to, to let grace teach us? What's going to motivate us? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. If you love him, you'll be looking for him to come. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. What kind of people? Zealous for good works. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke. 
Because Paul knew not every Christian's going to accept this message. I don't know how many times I have been told, Brother, Brother Doug, you don't preach grace. You talk about works too much. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, the authority that comes from God's word, and let no one despise you. May the Lord help us to understand both of these aspects of the grace of God. Well, let's stand. We'll be dismissed this evening.